Hosanna, a fellowship of Christians. Good morning. Welcome to Hosanna. If you're a guest with us, it's good to have you here. If you're joining us online, good morning to you. Let's stand together as we're able and let's worship our creator.
Shame into glory. 
The Bible speaks about the importance of surrendering our lives to God in many places. In Romans 12, 1 through 2, it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. But we're reminded in this verse that we must surrender our lives to God and allow him to transform us. We must be willing to lay down our burdens, the lies, and the doubts, and make room for God to do whatever he wants to do. So we're going to teach you this new song.
Thank you, worship team. Good morning, Hosanna. I want to welcome everyone. We have visitors with us. Welcome. All of you online, welcome. Um, I have a little story to tell you. As you might know, some of you know, we bring our granddaughters to church with us. Oh, should I be over here where they can see me? All right. We bring our granddaughters to church. And I, you know, it amazes me how every Sunday, if you were able to kind of go behind the scenes and see all the things that happen, and then at the end of the morning, when you're leaving, go, oh my word, you know, God is really at work here in a mysterious way because the littlest things all tie together. I'll even, I don't want to take your thunder, but you may bring this up, Tony. I'll even use that word combobulation, okay? <laughs> we become combobulated. Now, this all started in the car this morning. Granddaughters are in the back. One of them is complaining that you are in my bubble. You're in my bubble. Get out of my bubble. And the other's like, I'm not in your bubble. No, you're in my bubble. And then the one says, well, there's all kinds of drama up in here. Get your popcorn. <laughs> okay. So I just let it go, puts a smile on my face. And then we come and, and we meet over here, and there's a simple prayer that says, Lord, your way is better. And then we hear a song about laying it down and surrendering. And I believe the invitation from my granddaughters today is that if you come in here with drama and you come in here with heaviness of any kind, you are invited to lay it down and grab the popcorn. Because if you don't sit back and let him do what he wants to do, it, ugh, it's going to be a mess. So just let him do it. I know it's hard. It's hard for everybody to lay it down, but I invite you to get the popcorn. Now, ushers, you're coming forward to take an offering. You're ready. Let's pray for this offering. Father, we thank you so much that we can lay the drama down at your feet. We thank you so much that you love us more than we could ever imagine. And one day we will truly see that. Um, Lord, we thank you for the way that you bless us and, and, Father, the abilities you give us. Lord, we take this offering, this portion of what you give us. We ask that you use it to bless people in our community and throughout the world. We ask that you continue to bless the work that's being done here, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let's, let's look at our announcements. In the back, we have a little bucket on a stool called Change for Change. That's a place where you can drop off your spare change, or as my friend from Tennessee says, folding money, um, if you are so inclined. Today's the last day to Put money in there that is going to be going to our sister church in Bulgaria to bless people with Christmas gifts. If you would like, if, if you uh, don't have that opportunity to give today, you can always, uh, this week, use push pay or send money into the church 
just earmark it and make sure we know that it's for uh, Hadi and Pincus Church in Bulgaria. Uh, next month, for the month of October, the money that is deposited in Change for Change is going to go to the Warwick Community Chest. Their food pantry right now is very low, so those funds will be going to restock the food pantry. Uh, today is the last day of the class. We just disagree. It's going to be happening in the Blue Room right after the service. And next week, there's a new adult class, which is going to start. Um, I'm just going to read the uh, copy that I was given. Wish I had a teleprompter. Then I could keep looking out here. Uh, what matters most about our faith? That's the question we'll take up in our next adult class, which will be based upon a story in a book titled The Last Word and the Word After That by Brian McLaren. Tony and Joanne are going to facilitate the conversation of this class, and Tony also has some used copies of this book. So if you're interested in coming to the class, would like to read the book, you can see Tony. I'm sure he'll pass on uh, a used copy um, as a reference for that class. And as I said, it's going to begin next week. Um, also, the final announcement would be to check your mail slot if you have one here today. I checked mine as soon as I walked in, and there is things in there. So check it. All right. Thank you, Tony, Joanne. A <laughs> hundred years ago at this time of day, you remember, Chris, uh, there was... <laughs> the... <laughs> Sorry, you're front and center. <laughs> One of the most famous celebrities in the United States was not a movie star and not an athlete, was a preacher, believe it or not. And this preacher led the largest church in the country, located in the newly bustling Los Angeles. And Los Angeles was becoming famous because of this new movie business that was emerging there. And this preacher watched those movies and copied some of the drama from those movies, Kevin. <laughs> One time, the preacher, dressed in a motorcycle cop uniform, hopped on a motorcycle cop motorcycle and drove it into the church, up to the platform, came to a, very fast, came to a screeching halt, and then yelled out, Stop! You're speeding to hell! <laughs> A Sunday message at this church might include live animals. They had dozens of them available. Elaborate set pieces like those used in those new movie studios. She had a, they had a whole team of people that would construct these things. Or maybe it would include a homemade Christian opera accompanied by a full orchestra. Maybe they had popcorn. Yeah. I don't know, of all the drama. And people just swarmed in. They wanted to see and hear the preacher's very evangelistic, ear-catching message, which was very simple. Forsake sin, accept Jesus now. Her name, this preacher's name, was Amy Semple McPherson. Mm -hmm. Women clergy were very rare in those days, and she was noticeable, complicated. She didn't fit the traditional categories or labels. Mm -hmm. She was Pentecostal had a strong faith healing ministry. She was also a fundamentalist who was criticized by other fundamentalists for using worldly methods to communicate her gospel. 
She was a white woman who fought racial discrimination back before it was popular. She became the country's first radio preacher. She actually owned her own radio station, only the second woman in the country to have one. She appeared in movies. She was on the cover of Time magazine. She evangelized in bars, which was scandalous. And she dressed like those glamorous female movie stars who were her friends. She also founded an entire denomination, the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel. Anyone hear of them? They're still around. Foursquare Gospel was her theme. She had no formal education in Bible or theology, but she founded a Bible college. She started a magazine specifically for women, encouraging them to follow the call of God on their life, even if it meant professional ministry. We love her. (laughs) And when millions of people plunged into poverty during the Great Depression, Amy Semple McPherson's ministry was at the front end of relief efforts. True Christianity, she said, is not only to be good, but to do good. And so she and her team fed 1.5, an estimated 1.5 million people. That church, 1.5 million people during the worst of the 1930s. There's a picture with a, an arrow of her in there. Her, her fame receded later in life, but when she died, she was buried in Forest Lawn Cemetery in Glendale, California, which is the cemetery <laughs> for the stars. It's where all the celebrities go. And because I like hanging out in cemeteries, when uh, I was in L.A., I visited her grave there <laughs> yeah, a few years ago. Of course you did. I have a slide for that, by the way, Jeff. I forgot to bullet it. Well, Amy Semple McPherson, this is going to kind of cramp my style because I can't move. I'll just move this one. Uh, Amy Semple McPherson may not be well remembered 100 years later, but through the perspective of history, we can now see that what was seen in her generation as new and eccentric actually came to characterize much of Christianity in the 20th century, right? We're from, that doesn't sound odd to us, right? Because it's been done in the 20th century. And not only here in America, but elsewhere in, in the kingdom as well. Over the past six weeks or so, we've been making a pilgrimage of sorts through the story of the church. And this morning, we've come to the last era. And because we're living in this part of the story... In all of its complicated glory, Amy's story, right? Just like Amy's story, it's hard for us to sort out and describe and have enough hindsight to actually look at our own time in the same way that we've been able to uh, look at the the eras of the past. But we're going to try. Um, So the time period that we're exploring today is roughly the last two centuries, 1800 through 2000-ish. The theme of the series, if you'll remember, is One Body in Witness. And each week, we're noticing something that the church was witnessing to in each time period. Today, we're noticing that in this most recent era, the church has been witnessing to mission, a witness to mission. And that part of that mission has included a whole bunch of celebrity Christians. Amy wasn't the only one. We'll mention a few more along the way. Mm -hmm. So let's do what we've been doing for the other ones. Let's start with some of the historical themes, what was going on, and then how they affected what was happening in the church. Now, the first one, I don't want to lose you on this one because it's going to sound really boring. Hang in there for three minutes. 
It actually brought incredible change to the world, and it was industrialization, mm. <laughs> which is simply a change from making things by hand to making them by machine, usually in a factory. And there was this massive industrial revolution, and it literally it changed everything, especially ordinary life. And if you don't believe me, think about how you got up and got ready for church this morning. You guys online too, okay? Mm -hmm. You probably woke up to an electric alarm, maybe one on your phone, maybe another machine that was near your bed, machine made in a factory, and you brushed your teeth with a toothbrush and with toothpaste made in a factory. You took a shower in water heated by a machine that pumped water to you by another one, got dressed in clothes made in a factory. I doubt many of you woke up to a rooster and took a, took a dip in the pond. Right. Okay, that's right. the point. Right. And then you came to this building, if you are here, constructed with factory-made materials in a factory-made car. Everything we do is touched by industrialization. So maybe it's no wonder then that many Christians in this era began to think about the process of coming to faith. Or maturing in faith is sort of like a factory process, kind of like an assembly line. After all, don't factories and churches turn raw materials into finished products? The raw materials being the new convert, the finished product being a mature disciple, right? You can almost imagine what they're thinking. Well, certainly we can devise an efficient way to turn converts into disciples. Follow this three-step program. Pray this four-step prayer. Come to this 12-step program. Believe in this 27-paragraph creed. Yes. Do what we tell you. Do when we tell you. And when you're all done, you're going to pop up like bread out of a toaster. Yeah. <laughs> right. Already. <laughs> the imprint of Jesus led you. Now, I'm being a little sarcastic here, and not all the programs and prayers and that stuff is bad, of course. But the danger is that approach can end up treating people like consumers, a God like a factory owner who just wants bigger, better, faster products and bigger, better, faster churches in order to be able to sell things to the world. We learned how to merchandise Christianity, and it's not been good. Right. And one of the first preachers to think that way is someone Tony and I actually like for some other reasons, okay? But Charles Finney, that name is probably familiar to some of you, he, because he was another celebrity preacher. And he lived 100 years before Amy did, okay? He was Presbyterian, not Pentecostal. But he, too, pastored the largest church in the country for his time. And he became even more famous as he went out from that church as a traveling evangelist. And he was unique in a lot of ways. One of them, and this is kind of some of what we like about Charles Finney, he believed slavery was a blight on humanity in the church. Um, he advocated for immediate abolition, like free the slaves now. Yeah, because that's gospel. He rejected the notion that humans were born into sin, believing instead, and if you remember in this series, we looked at our Celtic Christian brothers and sisters, and he believed more like them that we sin because we choose to sin. So he invited people to choose not to sin through a relationship with Jesus. Why? Mission. So the world would become more and more what God desired the world to become. 
when God first created it, and so that the thousand-year reign of Jesus could begin, which was a big thing at that time, the millennial reign of Jesus. Finney was the leader of a revival movement that most of you will know this, the, the name of it. It was called this, the Second Great Awakening. And he was innovative in a lot of ways and very innovative in evangelism. Tony's the, the, one, the historian who knows all these details, and he said that Finney's the one who invented the altar call, which this church's history, we had our roots in Southern Baptist life. There was an altar call every Sunday. Well, Finney's the one who invented that. He also invented something that he called an anxious bench. And the anxious bench was placed right up front, right under the pulpit, which was usually raised. And anybody could come and sit down on that bench if they were anxious about their salvation, about whether they were saved or not, so that they could receive the full weight of grace as it was being preached and offered from the pulpit. But at the heart of it all was the desire for everyone to experience genuine conversion, a personal conversion experience. He believed that also, he believed that revivals were not unpredictable, random happenings. But like his era, he, he believed that, yes, this happens uh, through the Spirit. This is God's choosing but revival breaks out when the right methods are used, are put in place, so that God can do what God wants to do, like the song we just sang. And so he was determined to find and use the right methods for revival to break out. So that was one thing that was going on. It's fascinating, isn't it? Mm -hmm. The Second Great Awakening affected not only the U.S. and other parts of the world because it was also time, here's the second piece, for a rapid globalization. The world got much, much smaller. The Industrial Revolution actually caused a lot of this. Factories needed raw materials. And then those owners, the merchants, when they had finished goods, needed customers. So they began to trade with other countries. Hey, send us your cotton and we'll send you, we'll send you nice clothing. Um, and if trading became challenging for any reasons, those rich merchants would talk their governments into just, well, take over, taking over the country and turning it into a colony so you can force them to send you their stuff and force them to buy your stuff from them. By 1900, the Western world, Europe and America, controlled about 90% of the world because of this process. Problem was, of course, that and this was highly competitive, and when they got done dividing the world between them, well, what else to do? We just compete. They ended up fighting each other. And there was actually more wars and bloodshed in the 20th century than in all the other centuries of the world combined. Many of us mm -hmm. lived through a portion of this. We remember. Most of us did not live through World, world Wars I and II, but devastating to the world as a whole. The world got smaller, but it also got bloodier. It got a lot more divided. The good part about this for the church, however, is that globalization also sparked the greatest missionary movement in the history of the church. Go into all the world, Jesus said. And now they could. And they did. So much so that by 2000, Christianity, which had been just kind of a European thing two and a half mm -hmm. centuries before, was the largest religion on earth. And, nearly, and it's present nearly everywhere on earth. 
At that point, there were actually more Christians outside of Europe and the United States than there were in those places like here. And the many courageous missionaries who made that happen, boy, there's lots of names and lots of people whose names are not known, but there were folks who became almost celebrities. William Carey, Henry Hudson Taylor, C.T. Studd, mm-hmm. who became heroes for generations that followed after them. Yeah, and here's one story that I particularly enjoy. It was March 1901, a seven-year-old Indian girl from India named Prina, escaped yet again from a Hindu temple where she'd been abandoned by her mother as a devotion to the gods. She'd already been there since she was quite young. And she was abandoned by her mother as an offering to the gods, and what did Prina need to do? She needed to be a temple prostitute at that age. She escaped. Her mother always returned her to the temple. But this time, Prina ran farther away And she found a small village church where she was able to sleep safely for the night. The next day, she was found and embraced and kissed by the one she would call Amma, 34-year-old Irish missionary Amy Carmichael. Amy had been in India for six years, and she, she never went home to Ireland. She remained in India until her death in 1951. Through Prina... Amy learned about the horrors of the caste system, and she felt God's love, unquenchable love for the children, especially, who were trapped in the system. And she felt his unrelenting call to her to go rescue them and disciple them. And she just felt like it was her God-given job to go rescue as many abandoned, exploited children as she could, especially from the temples. As a child in Ireland, Amy had a prayed, she had what she called boring brown eyes. And she prayed for her boring brown eyes to become blue. But as an adult in India, she dyed her hair brown, and she wore traditional Indian clothing. Why? So she would be less scary to the children. And she and some of her missionary friends transformed their house into an orphanage which became a sanctuary for more than 1,000 children. And Amy Amy thanked God every day for boring brown eyes. Sorry, I was hearing Crystal Gale's song in my head as you were talking. Don't Mm -hmm. make my brown eyes blue. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Sadly, many Christians imposed their home culture on their new converts. Amy Carmichael did not do that. She chose to accept their culture as her own. The silliest example of this had to be the Puritan missionaries who evangelized Hawaii. This is back when Hawaii was a a foreign country, and they insisted that their new Hawaiian Christians wear stiff, formal clothing up to the neck with all their bodies covered in in the tropics of Hawaii, that they sit on uncomfortable wooden pews in New England-style church buildings, that they sing traditional hymns accompanied by an organ. In other words, nothing Hawaiian was considered appropriate for Christians. All of that was to be discarded. You had to look like New Englanders. And some of those missionaries held on to control of new churches and new Christians for far longer than was necessary. 
It wasn't actually until the late 20th century that most Christians in other parts of the world were able to lead their own churches and manage their own money. The good news is that as the world became smaller, the global church became more aware of one another and more connected. And it's just amazing these days how closely connected the world is. In my day job, and I'm not that important of a person, but I, I talk regularly with people around the world. It's just ordinary anymore that we can do that. It's pretty cool. Part of the reluctance to let go of control stemmed from an increasingly pessimistic view of human nature. People in the 19th century have been very hopeful about human progress. I mean, Charles Finney's promoting perfectionism. We can make the world better. But the wars and the terrors of the 20th century turned that, flipped it completely around. I tell you, by mid-century, most people concluded that the world was out of our control that there was some unseen force driving both individuals and nations to act the way that they did. There were some forces that were causing all of these horrific wars and tearing us apart. They just disagreed on what it was. What is that unseen force? Well, maybe it was, maybe it was some kind of biological impulse. Darwin survived with the fittest, and Darwin became popular in ways that he had not been before. Or maybe it was psychology. Maybe it was the unconscious mind driving our actions. And Sigmund Freud became very popular, promoting those kind of ideas. Maybe it was economics and class warfare, like Karl Marx had said. And suddenly after World War I, Karl Marx and his ideas become popular. Or maybe it was God. Maybe God had planned it all, and this was the way it was supposed to look and God was working out his purposes in the midst of all of this horrible stuff. Maybe God had predicted and intended it. Charles Finney had believed that things were going to get better and better, yes, and then Christ would return to reign on earth. John Nelson Darby, who was one of his contemporaries, disagreed. He had said, this is back in the early 1800s, that things were going to get worse and worse until Christ would return to rapture us away from tribulation on earth. We were going to be able to escape. And not many people listened to Darby for 80 years until after World War I, when pessimistic believers made Darby's dispensational theology quite popular. You know what? It's not getting better and better. It's getting worse, and it's going to keep getting worse. But don't worry. Yeah. Hmm? Don't worry. We'll get whisked out of here. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll Unlike those in the Colosseum at the beginning. Mm -hmm. No, we'll get whisked out of here. This is still the most popular understanding of the end times in our own country. It's fairly new in the history of the world, but uh, it explains the pessimism of the 20th century that made it popular. In this time of great uncertainty, Christians, what do I trust? Who do I trust? They leaned into their primary sources of authority for assurance. So the Catholic Church, which had always valued the authority of the clergy, declared in the late 1800s that under certain circumstances, the Pope could be inerrant could actually speak without error, and you could trust that deeply in their primary authority. A generation later, Protestant fundamentalists here in the United States who valued the authority of Scripture, as we do, responded by declaring that, no, it wasn't the Pope, it was the Bible that was inerrant. That word really hadn't been used much before about 100 years ago. Everybody believed in the authority, but they hadn't talked about it being inerrant. And I'm not critiquing the ideas of either group, by the way. I'm just noticing when these ideas appeared and why they appeared then. 
It was a time of uncertainty, and people wanted something that they could hold on to and trust. I need an authority that I know is rock solid. And so they leaned, Christians leaned into their authorities that way. And another celebrity Christian of uh, Amy Semple McPherson's generation got caught in the cultural crossfire of those times, too. Um, William Jennings Bryan, maybe familiar name to some of you, he was nominated for president by a major political party three times and lost all three times. But he was a very popular. He spoke all over the country, and he even spoke at Mount Gretna, once, and then he visited Lidditz, and there was great fanfare receiving him. He was a very, very famous and powerful person. He was also very open about his Christian faith, and that's why he was asked in 1925 to serve as the prosecuting attorney for what became the most famous court case of the century. Anybody know what it was? Scope's trial. Right. John Scope's A teacher in Dayton, Tennessee, was put on trial for teaching evolution. Charles Darrow, his defense attorney, surprised everybody because he put the other attorney, Brian, on on the stand as an expert witness. Now, despite, and Inherit the Wind is the movie, right? The the famous movie that goes along with this. Um, But despite his, his passionate faith, William Jennings Bryan, he didn't know science or theology well enough to be an expert witness on either. And on the stand, he ended up looking foolish. And he made other Christians look foolish too. Okay. Again, we're not debating, you know, is this right, is this wrong? We're not talking about evolution itself. We're just noticing this was huge in the time. And it it had great influence. And what is so really very interesting is even though he won the case, they won the case and the teacher had to pay a $100 fine and and stop teaching evolution. Even though he won, though, Brian never left that town. He never left Dayton. Now, maybe he was burdened with a sense of failure, you know, on his Christian mission. We don't know. All we know is he took a nap after church that Sunday and he never woke up. And Tony notices, you know, maybe something hopeful in American Christianity died with him that day. It was 1925. By the way, I visited Dayton. Of course. There's, <laughs> there's, there's Is he statues. buried there? Huh? Is he buried there? No. Oh, okay. No. So you couldn't visit his grave. Or else grave. I would have been there, too. Right. But, uh, I, I visited the house where he had died. And the front yard of that court, that was, the court was so big, the crowd was so big that they had to move it out of the courtroom, out in the front yard, which is yeah. why you see, this is a live, this is a yeah. picture from that. And they're out under the trees having this trial and people trying to listen in and all the reporters there and everything. And there are statues of, yeah. of these people in the front yard of that today. It became a turning point in the relationship between Christianity and culture. Yep. Uh, there were several years ago, ninety-eight years. Yeah, ago. several of these were turning points, but that was a big one. Yeah. By the end of the twentieth century, this pessimism about human nature, about the future of the world, led to a philosophical movement that's sometimes called postmodernism, which means a lot of things to different people, but <laughs> insists that we can't know for certain what we think we know. 
Now, sometimes Christians have gotten confused and think the postmoderns are all saying that there is no absolute truth. That's not usually typical. What they're saying is you can, there might be absolute truth, but we've got to be humble about how much of it we tap into because I only know a certain slice of it, and, and you know a slice of it, and you know a slice of it. Mm-hmm. We've got to be humble in our truth claims. Yeah. We've got to operate with, if you want the academic phrase, a hermeneutic of suspicion. That is, we've got to be suspicious of anyone pounding the table, claiming that they have all the answers. Mm-hmm. We must recognize, as we say around here all the time, we see from where we stand. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to see clearly and know fully, we can't do it on our own. We're going to have to do it with others who can see what we can't, who stand in somewhat different places, who yeah. see more of the elephant than I do standing right in front of it. There's actually much that is Christian about this approach, really, although many Christians have resisted it. You ever think of it this way? Why does the New Testament, why did the New Testament give us four Gospels, not just one? If the point was to give us the perspective on Jesus, we only needed one Gospel to do that. We were given four perspectives on purpose because there's at least four different ways by which we can look at what he was doing and saying and understand it more fully. And therefore, understanding all four of them, reading all four of them, gives us a bigger, bigger, fuller picture than any one of those gospel writers could have given us on their own. So some 20th century Christians began to do the same thing in other matters of faith. Let's look at it from different perspectives. Let's see if we can see more fully if we stand over here. Some of them began to look, try to look, particularly through the eyes of the poor. Right, and one of those people was a Peruvian Christian named Gustavo Gutierrez. He's, not, he's still alive. He's 95 years old, and he has spent his life asking all iterations of one question. How do we meaningly convey to the poor that God loves them? The traditional answers uh, at the time, in some, in, to some degree today, but... And especially when he first began this, asking this question and developing theology around the poor. Um, the traditional answers emphasized the reward that the poor would get in heaven someday. And do you see what that can sound like to those who are poor? Oh, so I have to wait, I have to be impoverished and struggle and not have enough food to feed my families or whatever it might be now, but I'm going to get a great reward then. Wait a minute, that could be used by people in power to keep control, saying to the poor, oh, this is just what God wants for you. Hmm. So... They, some emphasize that the, the reward that the poor would get in heaven someday, or the justice that their descendants would, might, might get on earth someday. You're doing this so that your great-grandchildren, someday. But the idea is it's someday. It's always pushed off. Gutierrez wanted the poor in his part of the world to experience the liberating love of God here and now on earth as it is in heaven, so we they could be answers to that prayer, the Lord's Prayer that Jesus gave us to pray. So he became one of the leaders of a movement called Liberation Theology, which, again, we could talk about. We can talk about. There's critique and there's support, you know, and this is some of the complexity, you know, postmodernism and all of this complexity that we're living in now and that we need to 
have understanding of the past in order to be able to sort through to together today. But liberation theology became very influential in Latin America and elsewhere. It spread out from that region in the world. And they said that Christ's salvation was not just to get people to heaven someday. That's true. But bring it back here. It was also to empower people, especially the poor, the needy, the broken, to empower them to live a fuller, freer life right here in the present. Okay, that's a lot of historical background. Yes. What we've been doing up to now is largely just telling you the story. So we're mentioning things without necessarily advocating for them, or all of them have some good things and some bad just things. Just to make you aware. Yeah. yeah. But the question, of course, is what do we do with this? What can we learn from these past two centuries for the rest of our lives? Because like I said, nearly everybody in this room, as I'm looking around, has lived part of our lives in this time period. What can we bring forward into here and now? Some, some wisdom from both what they did well and what they did not do well at all. One of the main things we can learn from their experience is that we really need to walk together. The value of walking together instead of alone. What happened was that the world, and particularly in our part of the world, became increasingly individualistic. It began 500 years ago and just got worse and worse and worse. Um, it became terribly harmful to individual humans and to, and to our, our culture. Humans are not created to go it alone. God made us for community. And this time period shows us the trauma and the tragedy that happens when we get too individualistic and we get divided against one another. The good news is that we Christians know something about this. We should be able to show the, world, the way forward in this fractured world instead of contributing to more and more fracturing. And so one of the best examples of this was, uh, was a Christian and an archbishop in the Anglican Church, Desmond Tutu. Remember, you recognize his name. He didn't wear a tutu as far as I know. Great name. But back in South Africa in the 1980s and 90s, he used his Christian influence as, a, as an archbishop to help end apartheid. Apartheid was the legal force separation of the races. Yep. And he took the hand of Nelson Mandela and F.W. de Klerk, black man and white man, and said, so I'm going to hold on to both of your hands and bring you together. I'm going to help you two political enemies to learn how to work together for the common good of yeah. God's people. Yeah. Beautiful yeah. story. Yep. What else can we learn from them? We could learn the value of social reform. The Second Great Awakening inspired Christians to get involved in a changing world. And so many unnamed thousands of people, not just the names that we know that we're naming for you today and other names that you know, unnamed thousands of people got active. And um, one of them is another familiar name, um, Harriet Tubman. Sorry, my mind was going off on some other names. That I, Yeah, Harriet Tubman here in the United States um, who had been a slave and went, uh, escaped and then created the Underground Railroad. We're familiar with her and worked her, her, the entirety of her life for the abolition of slavery. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I really, that rabbit trail really just took me off. Um, also, Harriet Tubman, also um, William and Catherine Booth, you know, Salvation Army at Christmas time with the bells and collecting money. That was a massive movement into the inner cities primarily. Um, 
and they inspired all kinds of modern organizations to do missions not only to other countries, but also within their own cities, within their own countries, like World Vision, Habitat for Humanity, Hope, Compassion International, others. We're all inspired and can trace roots back to the booths. Uh, there was a Quaker named Susan B. Anthony, and for 50 years, she led in the struggle for women, the women's right to vote here in the United States. Episcopalian priest, Edgar Murphy, fought to reform child labor conditions in Alabama and did such a great job that folks in the North decided to join him. And in 1906, it went national and ended up with some federal reform for child labor. See, at the heart of all of this, social reform were the hearts of the reformers, which were on fire with personal experience of God's love and goodness, and with the desire to not just love them from afar, but to get busy, get active, to restore the lives of all of those made in God's likeness and image into something full of God's love and goodness, more like heaven on earth as it is in heaven. And right here, we could talk about Mother Teresa. I'm choosing not to for time. But we all know in Calcutta, India, this woman just devoted herself. And basically what she said, her ministry was picking the next person up off the streets, giving them dignity if they died, and feeding them, housing them, and giving them hope for life. There's a lot that we can learn and a lot we can say about all of these people. Um, but what we can learn from them, the value of social reform and the value of getting busy ourselves. The purpose of all of that was to try to alleviate some of that deep suffering that mm -hmm. so many people in the world experienced. And so we can also learn the value of the cross in this. We're not alone in our suffering. Jesus not only identifies with us in it, Jesus is actually shared in that suffering with us. Yep. And this is really the true beauty and the power of our faith. This is what gets forgotten so often in, in, in history. We've got to acknowledge this and, and admit it and, and regret it. So often in history, Christians have tried to seize power as a way of bringing about the kingdom of God, when Jesus' method was exactly the opposite. His method was to take on the suffering of the world, to surrender control, as if we've ever had control to begin with but to follow him in surrendering our control and to choose instead to trust powerlessness, the power of the cross, as the way by which God is going to transform the world. Yeah. Which means that we must also sometimes learn the value of waiting because it isn't instantaneous. This is not the waiting that says to the poor, don't ask for, it. Don't ask for your you know, bread now, but it is the value of waiting until redemption works its way out when we're in the midst of things we cannot control. Waiting for the healing in the midst of our pain. Here's an example of somebody that maybe did this well. Corey Tin Boone, some of you know her story, became very famous after World War II. In the 1930s, she was already a middle-aged Dutch Christian who watched the suffering of her Jewish neighbors in the Holocaust and decided that she wanted to risk her life and that of her family in order to help them. Well, her family decided that together. But her family, they hid them. A whole bunch, 
I don't know how many total, but these Jewish refugees would come through on this route to freedom, and they would be hidden in a secret compartment in the, uh, in the Tin Boom house. And when the police caught them, Corey's father was sent to prison and was never heard from again. He died there. Corey and her sister were sent to a concentration camp to suffer the same consequences as those they had tried to save. And there they waited for four years, trusting that, as the Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Either option was okay. Bessie died there, her sister. Corey continued to live, continued to wait. And one week before she would have been killed, she found this out later, she was released on a clerical error. Thank God for clerical errors once in a while. She spent the rest of her life telling people about the redemptive suffering of Jesus and learning how to forgive Nazis. Another thing we can learn, not only the value of the cross, but the value of the resurrection, it wasn't only Christ's cross that mattered. You know, that Christ is here suffering with us, suffering with the poor, Yes, that's true, and we need to pay attention. It's not only the cross to save us for heaven one day. It was also his resurrection that empowered them. They lived in the power of the resurrection, and they wanted to live out the Lord's Prayer, as I said earlier, that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven right now. And although, yes, they often went about it in ways that sometimes baffle us or even disturb us, they, at least they went about it. How wonderful would it be if we were to join them in their exuberance, in their hope, in, in their optimism, and in action without falling into some of the misuses of power and perhaps with a bit more humility at times. One more. The most influential new movement in Christianity in this time period was called Pentecostalism. In its focus, it reminds us of the value of the Spirit, the third member of the Trinity that, be honest, most Christians had never really talked about for all those previous centuries. But then another revival broke out. This was really the era of revivals. In a church on Azusa Street in Los Angeles again, who knew that Los Angeles was was where all the the interesting things that were going on in the faith 100 years ago? That revival broke out in Azusa Street and lasted nine years. And it was led by an African-American preacher, William Seymour. And Pentecostalism did break down racial barriers in some dramatic ways. And what happened was some dramatic works of the Spirit that people had not seen for centuries. They didn't quite know what to do with it. But it spread from there. And it's now the largest probably force in global Christianity today. It influenced much of Christianity, particularly through the charismatic renewal of the late 20th century, which was one expression of it, which is part of our own story here at Hosanna. And one of the gifts of this larger movement is the reminder that the Holy Spirit is with us and is for us and is even in us. God is not far away up in heaven. God is not long ago just in the biblical story through the Spirit Of Christ, we are joined with Christ and with each other. It is the Spirit that makes us one. That's what makes possible what we've been talking about here all year. Yeah. All right. So we could say much more, but we won't. 
We've been asking each week what spiritual practices were important to them in these various time uh, frames. And so what, what, what spiritual practices were important to them? Well, obviously, I think we've said this every week, one was worship. It's always important to worship, but historically, worship has been very often controlled for the sake of unity or theology or whoever's in power at the time. But now, as a result of a lot of what happened in the 19th and 20th centuries, we can worship in a multitude of ways and reflect our, our personal preferences, um, cultural heritage, uh, the diversity of, of the, the children of God and of the church. Um, we can worship together in the midst of biblical our biblical understandings and misunderstandings, and perhaps even with a bit more hopeful enthusiasm. The proclamation of the gospel was another spiritual practice that has existed for a long time. But in this time period, they get new technologies. The one of the biggest ones is the one that Joanne is holding in her hands right now, the microphone, which made it possible then for people to preach to more than just a room full of people. And suddenly you have these evangelists preaching to thousands at once. Louis Palau in Argentina and Dora Yu in China and Sadhu Sundar Singh in India led millions of people to Christ in the 20th century. And, of course, there was the, the grandfather of them all, Billy Graham. Yeah. Do you know that Billy Graham spoke live to more people than anyone else in all of history? Mm -hmm. Amazing. All, the, all those years, all those tens of thousands of peoples in stadiums. Yep. Other technologies, Christian Jews, creatively, effectively, TV, the Internet, um, film, it wasn't just Amy Semple McPherson who was tapping into that. You ever hear the Jesus film? It's just a simple telling of the life and the gospel of Jesus. It is the most watched movie of all time. It is the most translated movie of all time. It has literally been the vehicle that God has used for millions of people to come to faith in Christ. It's astonishing that that kind of technology exists. Of course... Let's also remember, however, that our own lives and testimonies remain the most effective way that we can proclaim good news in any generation. Another practice which we've mentioned, it's just that each era, and I, we hope you're seeing this, that throughout Christian history and the church his, church's history, each of these very important ways of praying or being together or being with God still matters. It's just that they're done, you know, they're engaged in a little bit of a different way. So this one um, is listening, the spiritual practice of listening. And we've talked about the gift of listening and the necessity of listening throughout this series from Pentecost, the very first message. Um, in our current time, the church worldwide is recovering some of the lost ancient ways of listening spiritually not only to the God who's active outside of us and directing our mission in the world, but really the last, I don't even know, 20th century, let's say, 20th century. It's also recovering a way, the ways of listening to the Spirit's voice of love within us. And as we sang earlier, which made me happy, that means that we must make room 
for that listening to happen. We've got to make space. And so individual Christian contemplative practices are really coming into the forefront, like silence and solitude. And those individual practices are being joined with communal practices, like today, scripture songs, which are just scripture being sung together. And it, um, it started in France, and now it's spread all over the world, these beautiful choruses of scripture. Um, group retreats, individual retreats, all of this coming back into the life of the church. And what's growing is a church that's more aware and more awake and falling more in love with Jesus and more able to hear and act like these reformers, to act in love on what we hear, not just know it, live it. Why? Mission for the sake of Christ and the world. A major listening practice is spiritual direction, which had been practiced throughout history, but primarily in monasteries and convents. But in the mid-20th century, an extraordinary monk named Thomas Merton enlarged his practice, offered it to ordinary Christians, and it's one of our community practices here at Hosanna today. Spiritual direction is simple, but it does require some maturity. It's a practice of regular, intentional companionship with another person on their spiritual journey. The way of sensitively listening to the voices and nudges of God together mm-hmm. and trusting the Spirit then to do the work of transformation. We don't have to force it on anyone. Right. And see, we can only mention these things. Another part of the contemplative Christian experience uh, is the understanding of the dark night of the soul. And all I'm going to, I'm just going to, maybe I'll say something a little more next week, but. We're there. We are there as a country, as a church, globally. We're there. What is the dark night of the soul? It's a journey of spiritual transformation. And it comes at just the right time. It does not come as punishment. It comes as great grace. The dark night opens when you've grown to the limits of what you can do in your own power. When you're tired, when you're full of questions, when nothing seems to make sense anymore, when everything seems to be falling apart, it opens and it beckons and it invites us to let go of doing for Christ so we can discover who we truly are in Christ. So the process is basically this. It's like a caterpillar. The caterpillar just crawls around eating everything it can. It's a consumer. It's growing bigger and bigger and bigger (laughs) until one day it cracks me up. How does that caterpillar, it just like gets a nudge or something, but one day it decides to do something it's never done before. It hangs upside down on a branch and surrenders. Remember that song we sang? Surrenders into the darkness of the cocoon. It chooses it. It surrenders into the chrysalis. And inside that cocoon, that chrysalis, it deconstructs, which is a word everybody uses, but they don't get it. We're being deconstructed right now. And the caterpillar deconstructs into what we call caterpillar goo. But what that caterpillar didn't know is that all along, within its caterpillar body, It was carrying cells called imaginal cells. And those imaginal cells at just the right time 
When that caterpillar felt like it was falling apart, those cells interacted with the enzymes in its messy, gooey self, and those cells began to transform into antennae and eyes, big eyes, and a completely different digestive system and wings. See, the butterfly that emerges from the chrysalis is exactly the same composition as the caterpillar that entered the darkness. Nothing's been added, nothing's been taken away. It's just that the darkness and disintegration was needed for it to become what God had intended it to be all along. Are we together? This is not a time for us to, this is a very optimistic time. The messier it gets, the gooier it gets. Oh my gosh, we've been carrying though in the church and in the body of Christ, imaginal cells. And we need to cooperate, folks. That darkness is needed for us to become for our time in history. What God needs us to be for our time in history. So it is with caterpillars, with butterflies, and with us humans, we too need to welcome the confusion and the discomfort of letting go. And we need to enter our cocoons knowing we're going to emerge changed before too long and we're going to learn to use these wings. Amen? One more spiritual practice that will lead us into our closing. Christians in this time period discovered that prayer can also involve our bodies. It's not just mental. It's not just here. So people have been kneeling in prayer for all along, but now did so more intentionally, and some started walking their prayers, maybe through a labyrinth or through pilgrimage. Others began lifting their prayer hands in prayer and then moving their feet in worship. And all of this helps us to remember that prayer is not something outside of our normal lives, but it's quite the opposite, that all we do can become prayer. And after all, that is the only way that we can pray without ceasing, right? Yes. Yep. Oh, is that me? Okay. That's you. All right. So it's time that we restore. It's being restored. But for us here at Hosanna, let's join in in the restoration of an incarnational understanding of our human bodies. Right? God offers us his grace uh, through these bodies that he's given us. We worship God with our spirits and with our bodies. We serve God with our spirits and with our bodies, and we pray with our spirits and our bodies. And it was fun. I won't say it all, but this morning early when I was looking at the notes, I started remembering, oh my gosh, it's all the way through scripture body prayer. There was Moses raising his hands and and kneading Aaron and and Hur's hands to keep his arms up when they were fighting the Amalekites, right? And the Shunammite woman who Elijah raised her son from the dead by laying on top of her son, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, and praying and resurrecting him. So the body is so important. Um, David dancing before the ark. Jesus healed people by laying hands on them sticking his fingers in their ears, putting spit on the tongue of the mute. And of course, all of it's prayer. So good news is we're not going to ask you to spit on your neighbors this morning. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> Instead, what we're going to do is we're, we're going to close um, by doing something very tame with our bodies. And of course, you can join in or not. You have freedom here. 
Um, but we're going to allow our bodies to join our minds and our hearts and our spirits in praying the Lord's Prayer. So if you would like to join in, I'm going to invite you to stand up, and I'm going to demonstrate, but that means I need both my hands, so I'm putting this down, and I'll, I'll use my outside voice. Okay. Can I hold Which it for my son was very, very... Can oh, I hold it for I you? I was going to say I could use my because outside they, voice. Because they need to hear you. Okay. No, but you're going to be in the way. <laughs> this is the story of our working relationship. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just do it. I'll just, it's okay. It's okay. Um, okay, I'm going to demonstrate it for you first. And then we're going to pray it with words together once. And then we're going to pray it once without words. Okay? It doesn't take long. It goes like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, I'm going to do with you. Go ahead. I love that your name is Jesus. Your kingdom Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not to temptation, deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, and the power, and the glory. Are yours. Never. 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 Amen. Okay. Now that wasn't hard. Not scary. Let's now you say the word to Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive us. And lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. said it's messy and gooey, but it's beautiful. Um, we were going to close with a blessing from India. Let's let this be the blessing today as we close. I would like to point out that our, our friend Jeff Barley is working on a project to help some of our brothers and sisters in India. If you want to hear anything about that, talk to Jeff. Jeff, wave, wave your hand. Go in God's peace.